Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 161. My guest in this episode is Dr. Judd Brewer, a neuroscientist and addiction psychiatrist who is an expert on habits and habit change. Brewer is the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center at Brown University, and he's the author of the book, The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break bad habits and his ted talk on how to change a bad habit has more than 12 million views he scanned anderson cooper's brain on 60 minutes he's been in the washington post and the new york times and time magazine and all the rest and i wanted to talk to dr brewer on the show because he and his team have developed a new suite of apps that tap into the brain's learning system to target cravings and according to his research these apps are extremely effective at helping people train themselves to stop doing things they would rather not be doing. But uh, here's the thing. I got so excited by what Brewer told me that this entire interview is just one tangent after another, but in a good way, because we end up talking about willpower and putrescence and disgust and dopamine and habits and psychiatrists and addiction and the event horizon of the black hole of worry the dangers of asking why too much, brain stuff like the prefrontal cortex, thinking is a chemically dependent process, consciousness, the placebo effect, mindfulness at the neurological level, meditation, psychedelics, and how they affect the default mode network. And yes, we do eventually talk about his apps, but normally what I would do is edit an interview like this into an episode about one of those topics, but I thought that it was such a unique and interesting discussion, I would just put it out as is. And so if you do want to learn more about his apps, you should know this up front. Go to drjud.com. That's drjud.com. But if you want to hear one of my favorite free association interviews about mind-blowing topics with a brain expert that goes all over the place, what follows is a fun conversation with neuroscientist and addiction psychiatrist, Dr. Judd Brewer. I'm Judd Brewer. I'm the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center at Brown University and also the founder of Mind Sciences. 
Now, it sounds like uh, you would have to go to school to do something like that. What, what, what is your academic background? <laughs> I'm an addiction psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. That is a lot of brain stuff for one person to know a whole lot about. Um, what got you interested in this? Why is this what you do for a living? Uh, I'm infinitely curious, I think, and, and more more to the point, uh, I, you know, in college, actually, I got really fascinated about the molecules of life and how, you know, I learned about these things like putrescine and cadaverine, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, these, these molecules are what make cadavers smell and things like that. So I actually was going to do a PhD in, in chemistry, but then realized that that was a little limiting in the sense that it wasn't directly applicable to how we might help people live better lives. And so got very interested in doing an MD-PhD program where I could combine my love and fascination for how things work and uh, research you know, orientation to uh, pragmatic measures like you know, how, do we, how do we change habits and things like that. Putrescine? What is putrescine? <laughs> it's a fatty acid molecule that basically makes cadavers smell putrid. It's that uh, when you smell something that's putrid, uh, there's a good likelihood that putrescine is involved. And I'm assuming uh, there has to be a hypothesis out there that when we smell that without any cultural input, we feel uh, visceral disgust because we have an evolved mechanism to, to translate the input of that signal to the output of a behavior routine? Is that, would that be reasonable? Yes, you don't have to learn this one in school. <laughs> <laughs> That's bizarro, and I love it. Uh, and it's also disgusting, but it's, it's pretty neat. Uh, disgust in general is a really fascinating avenue for talking about nature and nurture and the intertwined parallel evolving histories we have between the two. The the most disgust reactions if and tell me tell me the science behind this but as i understand it most of our disgust reactions are automatic and cross cultural and have nothing to do with learning anything right that's my understanding and you can even look at this from a, a evolutionary perspective from a time frame so when we eat something that's poisonous uh, we spit it out basically as soon as it's in our mouth but if you eat something that is not poisonous it takes time for that, you know, the caloric uh, value to register. So we're like, mm, let me eat this chocolate. Mm, uh, maybe I like this as compared to if it's poisonous. Right? What was that? How'd that get in my huh. mouth? So you can even see this on time scales that are much more rapid because we don't have time to sit around and go, mm, is this poisonous? <laughs> Doesn't work that way. So here's a question I've always wanted to ask a scientist. What do you think uh, was the... Uh, the like for things that that do kind of taste poisonous beer or like weird like or things that are like do elicit disgust like oysters right um what do you what would you think it was the was it just because our ancestors were ex were really really hungry or is it more of a incremental thing that would that would, that would sort of pull that into the regular diet of an early hominid that's a great question to which I have no answer. There we um, go. I did it. I did it. <laughs> Stump the professor. <laughs> uh, I dig that. I mean, you know, this is just talking about a diet and how um, if we have these evolved mechanisms for um, disgust and not disgust, uh, how come 
a lot of people eat disgusting things. And how come disgust is different? There's a if you know the science behind this, I would love to hear you to talk about it. The the when people smell, there's a study I remember where people would smell uh, cheese and or they would smell body odor. And uh, if they weren't primed to know which it was which, they would experience disgust. But if they were primed, they would feel disgust for one and not for the other. Do you remember that? No, but that is fascinating. I will have to check it out. Oh, it's so cool. They would tell people, you're about to smell cheese. And then they would smell it and their mouth would water and they would describe it. Mm-hmm. And then, Or they would tell them, you're about to smell socks. And they'd smell it and they'd go, bleh. But uh, it was all, the uh-huh. same smell both ways because it wasn't even a real smells like a chemically produced odor and uh if people were told one thing or the other they would either experience disgust or not now this is a question i can ask you so, how can that even be a yes. true thing yes uh, because i I'm, we're talking about something that happens at the biological level mm-hmm. how could it be i i communicate some information to you and it changes what happens biologically tell me something so that I do know something about. <laughs> In fact, my lab has been researching this for a while. It's really basically how do we form habits and how do we uh, create certain behaviors. And what you're talking about is a behavioral habit loop where we have learned you know, that socks smell disgusting and that cheese um, has this pleasant um, stinkiness to it that might make us feel like <laughs> you know, we're, we're some food connoisseur or something like that. So that actually goes back to the origins of, of survival, where, you know, think of our caveman brain that's, you know, it's, it's foraging around for food. It's got to find food sources and it's got to avoid danger. And there's quite a bit known about that now. It's called, you know, positive and negative reinforcement, operating conditioning, reinforcement learning. And basically we have, you know, there are three necessary and possibly sufficient elements where you have a trigger, a behavior, and a reward or a result. So basically, you see the food, uh, that you eat the food, that's the behavior, and then your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So it's actually a learning mechanism to help us remember where food is. You can see how it also plays uh, plays out with avoiding danger. You see danger, you run away, you live to tell your buddies, you know, that don't go there. <laughs> um, so that's that's the positive and negative reinforcement piece that's that was there before we had refrigerators, uh, you know, when food is abundant and when there aren't, you know, no longer have we no longer have saber tooth tigers roaming the streets. Uh, so there in, in most places there's not imminent danger where we have to be uh, be you know avoiding things. But in fact, these processes are you know, the strongest learning processes known from a scientific perspective. Uh, Eric Kandel got the Nobel Prize showing that this is evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. You know, uh, it's like you know, 20,000 20, neurons, not many neurons, yet it learns the same way. You can even see this with single-cell organisms where they will approach nutrient and they will move away from toxin you know, based on these chemotactic uh, receptors that they have. So very, very well in process. What's fascinating is, so not only can we learn, oh, socks are supposed to be disgusting, mm-hmm. where we t- kind of form a memory around you know, that context, because this is really about context, you know, like learning things in a particular context. And so we learn in a social context that socks are supposed to smell disgusting. <laughs> I'm sure if we had, you know, we had a culture where, you know, socks were put on shelves and they were, you know, they were 
held as these these great whatevers. <laughs> I can't even <laughs> think of it because our culture doesn't do that. Um, we would probably not have, you know, somebody did that experiment, they would they would uh, see that people had learned things a different way and that socks might be, oh, that's a sock. Oh, wow, I love socks. You know, whatever. <laughs> um, now, there's probably some biologic piece to this where it's like, you know, dirty is probably helpful to know if something smells dirty and needs to be washed. Um, so I'm, I'm probably making it a little more black and white than it than it is, but the basic process is the same. Now, what's fascinating to my lab is like, why do we form habits? And if you take this mechanism, you can look at it in modern day where we have learned to eat when we're stressed or bored or lonely or whatever, same mechanism. You know, you, you're bored, feels bad, you eat food, you feel better. And then your brain says, oh, do that again, do that again. So we, now we have an obesity epidemic. Uh, we learn to take pills when we're emotionally or physically in pain, right? We, the pills were only developed in the last couple of hundred years in terms of pain relievers. So we learned to take that. We now have an opioid epidemic in the United States. Uh, social media is designed <laughs> to, whenever we're bored, to get us to look at cute pictures of puppies or kittens or babies or whatever on Instagram uh, as a way to tap into that very, very old process that... Uh, that trumps any type of, of willpower that we have. In fact, <laughs> willpower is now being shown to be more a myth than muscle. You know, we have this idea that, oh, you know, at the end of the day, I feel depleted and it's harder to avoid ice cream. But in fact, <laughs> nobody has actually definitively shown that we have willpower in the first place. So there's been a bunch of work, and I know you've talked about this, you know, in terms of ego depletion. Mm-hmm. But that question may be, um, you know, and whether ego depletion is true or not might be trying to answer a question that was never a question in the first place, which is, do we actually have ego? Do we have willpower? You know, the assumption is, yes, we have willpower. And so we can then test to see if it's depleted. But people haven't actually gone back and looked to see, is, is willpower actually true? And this goes back centuries and centuries where this, this, there's this debate between, you know, the rider and the horse. You know, you, you see mm-hmm. these in ancient Greece and all this where, you know, there's this rider trying to tame this horse. And so we have this assumption that we actually have some type of control over our brains and our bodies. But nobody's actually definitively proven that. Yeah, I, I even in, in reporting it, from the top to the bottom, um, I have come to re- to the conclusion or just to the assumption that, um, you know, we don't know enough about this yet and that we're using a lot of metaphors in place of, um, evidence. <laughs> and so, uh, it's, it's refreshing to hear that there are people who are digging deep into it and, and boy, that's a good take. Uh, there's no such thing as willpower in the first place. I w- I want to get to that, but I want to build up to it because I want to ask a couple questions here. The first thing I want to understand is how does a habit form? And for, I guess a, good, a real question would be what is a habit and how does it form? And you can go as much detail as you'd like on this. I'm, I'm trying to figure out the, like I can accept that we have these if then statement sort of algorithmic things, the same as a worm to go toward good and away from bad. What, but even more fundamentally, how does my brain categorize something as good or bad like what is going on there and then how does that lead to a habitu- habituation 
Yeah, it's a great question. So our brains basically are designed, well, I shouldn't say, our brains are set up to help us uh, basically survive, right? And so there are these inherent mechanisms to help us avoid, you know, like I talked about, get nutrient, avoid danger. But at a very basic level, they're set up around um, basically pleasure and pain. So if we cut ourselves, we have these nerve receptors that say, hey, dude, you just got, you know, somebody just cut you. <laughs> uh, staunch staunch the, the bleeding, you know, stop the bleeding. And so there's something that, that says, hey, pay attention to this. And so the pain says, oh, that's really hot. It, you know, something's burning. Pay attention. Oh, that's painful. You've just cut yourself. Pay attention. And so it helps us orient to what's happening so that we can, you know, keep our bodies in good shape, basically. So, so that's, that's the very basic level. In the same way, that process is used to help us get nutrient. And there are these, these dopamine signals. There's actually a study relatively recently showing that we actually get dopamine signals that come from two parts of our body into our brain when we get nutrients in our, you know, when we, get, we, when we eat food. One somewhere in the mouth and then another, a second one coming from the stomach. And so there are these processes that say, hey, you know, remember this and do this again. Interestingly, dopamine itself, uh, when and when I work with my patients who have any any type of addictions, whether cocaine or whatever, all of these drugs really jack the dopamine system. They're not actually describing that in terms of pleasure, and so there's this. I think we you know, we we idealize dopamine. We idealize things like that and say, oh, that's pleasant. You know, dopamine is the happiness molecule. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's probably not the happiness molecule. It's probably there to help us learn things that says, hey, remember that, remember that, remember that, mm. and then anticipate uh, doing that behavior. So, for example, if we get a food source, we get a dopamine signal uh, that fires in our brain, it fires when we get that, especially if it's not something that we're expecting. And then over time, that dopamine fires in anticipation of receipt of that reward. So it says, you know, oh, here's a here's a cue that says you're going to get something, right? We see it commercial, uh, or we go to the grocery store and we see the the sign that says ice cream. So there's that cue, <laughs> and then that dopamine says, hey, go get the ice cream, you know, and, and it propels us to actually take action. So it actually drives motivated behavior. So notice how none of that is about happiness. That's just no, about I, behavior. I, 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 I want you to keep going with that line of uh, of uh, explanation, but it reminds me. I've always when I think when I've read about this, like about the monkeys that are apes that have, uh, you know, before you give them the grape juice, that's it's, it's when they when you when they know they're about to get it, that's when their brain goes, right? So then, oh my god, here comes grapes, just like uh, not that. yes, yeah, but not <laughs> yeah. That, that's that's the way I, I conceptualize it, and and the and then when you actually give them the squirt of grape juice, it's like mm, yay, but it's not as like the it's not the receipt of the reward as much as the anticipation that feels so crazy. And I've, I've seen this across many different things. Like, uh, the, it, and something that I've always noticed it is, is the buildup to like a big movie or a buildup to like a series finale is so full of these electric emotions. The it's almost, it almost feels like after the trailers and after the hype and after the talking about it and after the sharing things about it and everything and going on message boards and, 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 and uh, 
talking to people about what you think is going to happen. It almost feels like actually experiencing the thing is just sort of uh, compulsory, like 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 perfunctory. It feels like it's just. It feels like the actual experience is just the necessary requirement to complete the loop. Sometimes, um, and yes. and then there's like a drop off at the end where you, if you don't continue the anticipation and buzz of the thing there can be almost not necessarily a buyer's remorse but like this refractory period for for big things that have been hyped up i don't know go 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 ahead keep going yes so that's that's actually how we form habits and addictions where it starts to drive itself so for example you know we uh, learn to smoke cigarettes when we're young and um we start you know that becomes a habit and then the anticipation of smoking the cigarette is you know, driven by this dopamine deficit because we've actually <laughs> created the um, the pathway to say, hey, you need more, you know, you need more dopamine, you need more dopamine from this thing, and you know we're, we're setting up these pathways that are actually literally killing us, but are set up through these old habit loops. So uh, the what are, what are the steps if you were to like chop it up into bits? What would the steps be? I think from a behavioral standpoint, the, the you know the basic step, the first step is uh, getting some unanticipated reward with a certain behavior, which then gets laid down in memory. Second step would be repeating that over and over, which then uh, shifts the dopamine firing as we talked about, uh, and then to the point where that becomes habitual. And if you think of us, you know, there's a very simple definition of habit, which is basically a settled or a regular tendency, especially one that is hard to give up, right? Because we're doing something habitually. So if we, if we learn to eat popcorn when we're watching Netflix or when we're at a movie, that's, you know, that can be very pleasurable the first time we do it. I, I still remember the smell of movie theater popcorn, you know, I don't know. Mm what chemicals they put in it to make us, you know, make it really addictive. But there's this great balance between fat and salt and, you know, carbohydrate and whatever, and the experience of going to a movie. So then, you know, we, we sit down to watch a movie at home and we feel like there's a deficit. We're like, oh, what am I missing? Oh, popcorn. I got to make popcorn and eat, eat while I'm watching this movie. And, and every time we do that, we reinforce that to the point where we don't even think about it. You know, we're not necessarily eating when we're hungry. I love that you just ruined popcorn. The, the not really, not really, you didn't ruin it. But I love the idea that uh, when if you're sitting there eating popcorn while watching Netflix, you're engaged in something that is really illustrative of the fundamental chemical, biological, evolutionary foundations of our human essence. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> that this is. You, if you have to stop and ask, and this is really this is this plays right into what your book is about and what your work's about. You could stop and ask yourself, "Why am I doing that?" Instead of just going, "Popcorn goes with movies," and you advocate for mindfulness in a way that I haven't seen applied before. So I want to talk about that uh, the idea of this, but to segue into mindfulness in general, and I think it's because the popcorn is a great example. You've, you're saying that the, the, this system can apply to things that are not food. I can totally understand that if I put a, a chemical, uh, some food, if I put some food in my, in my mouth, like that's a, these are chemicals from the external environment, something inside this giant complicated organism determines that these are 
good chemicals that I should find more of, uh, cranks up this dopamine system, and, and now habituation can take place. I get it. How does that take place, though, when it comes to like um, perception? Like a lot of our mating behavior and a lot of behavior in general is about I, you know, I'm. It's an it's an emotional reaction. I like feeling this emotion. I don't like feeling this other emotion. It feels like the habituation can take place without there being any direct chemical interaction between me and the outside world. It feels like it's something that's happening in, completely internally that's driving me toward or away from certain behaviors. Just if you could talk about that yeah. briefly. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because this is the field of psychiatry is actually moving to expand the definition of addiction to include things like behaviors. So where it, it has classically been substances, you know, it's like, oh, these substances jack the dopamine system. Well, it's now being shown that behaviors can actually jack the same dopamine system. And this has been shown with things like Facebook, with things like Instagram. So, for example, there's a study at UCLA where they um, they used fMRI scanning with adolescents where they could measure their brain activity. And they found that showing them their own Instagram feeds, but the only manipulation they made was how many likes certain pictures got. Mm. When certain pictures got more likes, uh, that activated their nucleus accumbens, which is this dopamine reward pathway. But it also activated uh, the default mode network, which is this network involved in self-reference. And so it seems that there are now being links made between reward and self. So there's something in, you know, inherently survival oriented or rewarding about this. And there, you know, people have speculated that in current, you know, modern day, that social currency is actually a survival mechanism. You know, it, it can, it can help us survive literally. This is the thing, like um, at the foundation of any of this, there's going to be something survival based, something that comes down to going toward the good thing and away from the bad thing, attraction and repulsion, like a worm, like a, like a, like a simple organism. And any, so I'm assuming that we can make the leap that anything addictive is going to be addictive because at some foundational level, it's moving toward a thing that was better to move toward than to move away from at the, at some essential, ineffable biological place. Is, is that a reasonable thing to say? It is. So let's, let's push the boundaries here because... Uh, it's been this has been shown with even behaviors that aren't classically thought of as addictions or habits. So be ready to go. Let's do uh, it. <laughs> Two thousand one. So I am I am in the obelisk. Let's go. <laughs> there's been a, a fair amount of work now that's suggested that things like worry can actually be laid down through negative reinforcement. So, for example, an unpleasant emotion like fear. Or uh, uncertainty is our brains hate uncertainty, as I'm sure you know, mm. and so we start to worry. So that's the trigger that you know is the unpleasant emotion. Then we start to worry as the mental behavior, and then we get this uh, this brief relief or this little bit of reward where our brain says, "Oh, I'm doing something," <laughs> thinking that it you know it's actually getting in control or it's solving a problem or something like that. And so that worry um, actually starts to. Sp- uh, spin back on itself because worry itself doesn't feel good and worry doesn't generally solve problems. <laughs> it just makes things worse. Our prefrontal cortex goes offline. We can't think as well. Uh, so the worry becomes its own trigger and then its own behavior. And then it's just this ping pong back and forth or this, this Whoa. death spiral where it becomes its own habit loop. So we've been looking at this as well. 
in, in particular, and we can get into this in a minute, how mindfulness training can actually help with all sorts of addictions from, you know, cigarettes to eating to even anxiety. Whoa. So I, so something is, I'm worried about something and this, this, this gets so nested and so it's turtles all the way down. It's so weird. So like, okay, something has pinged my system. Uh, some signal from the internal or external environment has, has alerted me in some way. And I want to resolve this alert and I start to create counterfactual conceptualizations to try to figure out what I, what to make a plan to create some goal oriented behavior. And we call that worry and worry. So, but worry doesn't feel good, but worry is also the thing that is the system that's being pinged. And so I'm worry is both an attractive force and a repulsive force. And so I'm trying to, I get stuck in a, in a, in a hamster wheel. This is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, you know, our brains are always trying to predict the future and worry comes in as this mental behavior that says, Hey, I will save the day. I will predict the future. And if we don't have accurate information, which largely we don't when we're worrying, yeah, our brain doesn't say, Oh, what about this? What about this? Or, Oh, maybe this could happen. And then maybe this can happen. And, you know, it starts thinking about all the, the things that could happen <laughs> and then goes off on that. And then just becomes this death spiral. We go over the event horizon into uh, that black hole of anxiety. Oh, the event horizon of worry there. It's so good that cause the only way out is to add more information to the system so that it can propel itself away from the worry black hole. <laughs> Right. And generally that information is not accessible. And on top of that, when we're in the black hole, our prefrontal cortex is offline. So it's, we're not actually in the space where we can get accurate information where we can't, you know, we can't make good rational decisions when we're freaked out. Oh, so you're, you're, it deprioritizes seeking out new novel information because you're sort of in a state of panic. And so you, instead you want to go in your hidey hole, which eliminates the ability to get the novel information that would alter the model so that you could stop worrying and make a reasonable plan of action. Not only not get, but we can't process that information accurately, right? We've, we've got our spirit goggles on. Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone's been in this situation. We have all been drawn into this uh, internal hell that is, I can't stop thinking about this thing and I need it to be resolved. This, this really makes sense why therapy is so powerful because in the therapy, someone can knock you out of that loop, but they can say, have you considered this or here's some information you didn't know. It's also why if you have, if you don't have like a job or a, a routine that gets you out of the very same things every single day, it's much more difficult to escape that black hole because if you just interact with different, with people, if you just go different places that you haven't gone before, there's an opportunity that you might receive novel information. And if you get put on tasks that aren't the worry, you will have more cognitive resources perhaps to kind of contemplate the information as well. Yes. Now I want to make a distinction here and I'm a board certified psychiatrist, so I'm not knocking psychotherapy. Pragmatic psychotherapy, like you talked about, it can be very helpful for people. Sometimes people can get stuck in another black hole of why. Why did this happen to me? And they go back and explore, you know, if I could just figure it out what it was in my childhood that caused this, then I could. Well, you know what? Your childhood is past. It's not in the present moment. 
So you might get some insight as to, oh, yeah, this is how I formed this habit, but it doesn't actually help to solve it once you have that insight. You might see why you're doing something, but this is where we actually have to get very pragmatic and say, okay, in this present moment, what can we actually do about this? And what we've been looking at is ways to, you know, if this, if the prefrontal cortex, if the willpower part of our brain is more myth than muscle and goes offline when we get stressed, you know, at, at best, then what if we actually tried to tap into these deeper processes, these, these stronger parts of the brain, the ones that actually forms, form habits in the first place? And what, you know, what our research is suggesting is that, yes, we can actually do that. You know, we've gotten, and we can dive into this, we've gotten five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking cessation. We've got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating with an app-based mindfulness training. We've got a, a close to a 60% reduction in anxiety in anxious physicians in another app-based mindfulness okay, training. That's, okay, so, I'm going I'm to get there in a second. That, I, yeah. I, I have to bridge, I have to get there through a bridge that I'm building as we talk, the, 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 the <laughs> this, uh, so I'm thinking now you made me th- to see wor- worrying and asking why over and over again and plundering these questions are like overeating or uh, they're like, uh, sacrificing your good situation for a base instinct or for a base vice or whatever, like, like alcoholism or, or overeating or, really poor relationship choices. Uh, you know, all these things are based off of fundamental drives for which we have no escape. We, and they're all about going toward reward or uh, going toward the good thing and away from the bad thing. And whatever those good and bad is determined at the chemical level. Okay. But, but it's, it blows my mind that worrying and eating are basically are, are in that same place. Cause these are usually tasks that resolve in positive outcomes but overdoing them results in extremely negative outcomes. Yep. Our brain is a one-hit wonder. <laughs> it knows how to learn in a certain way, and it just uses that for everything, you know, for, for many of these basic processes. I'll give you a concrete example. I had a patient uh, in my clinic who was referred to me for alcoholism. And it turns out when, we, when I took his history, he had started drinking because he was severely anxious. And so you can think of the trigger being anxiety. His behavior was he would drink, you know, six to eight drinks a night. And then that reward was that he could numb himself out temporarily. But, of course, he came to me because he, he realized that this wasn't working. He'd gained a lot of weight. It was expensive. And the alcohol wasn't actually fixing his anxiety in the first place. So you can see how these mm-hmm. even spiral uh, and feed each other, literally. And I wanna, before we talk about technology, one thing I didn't ask was – when we say something, people say this all the time, like this is addictive and this is chemically addictive. Like one, we seem to kind of separate them to say like, I'm addicted to uh, Netflix or whatever, or I'm addicted, but I'm chemically addicted to cigarettes or I'm chemically addicted to heroin. What is the, what is our understanding of, of the difference? And what is our understanding of, and we may have, we've covered some of that, but when you are purely chemically addicted to something, what does that even mean? Yeah, it, you can't really separate the two. So I think it's an artificial distinction on one hand, but there is a, a real, so I think of it as physical dependence with some of these things. So for example, uh, with alcohol, it literally changes these benzodiazepine, the, the expression of certain uh, benzodiazepine receptors in your brain that it, that it uh, binds to. Uh, with cocaine, it literally blocks uh, the dopamine transporter, for example. And so all of these drugs literally change the chemicals in, you know, when you take a drug, it 
increases dopamine level in your brain and your brain uh, compensates to deal with that increased chemical, generally in the, in the case of up, um, receptor upregulation and downregulation. It basically makes more receptors in some places and sometimes will decrease receptors in others and do all these things to try mm. to deal with all this extra chemical. So that's the chemical dependence piece. And you, somebody could say, I'm, I'm physically dependent on cigarettes or I'm physically addicted to cigarettes. But you can't actually separate that from the psychological piece. And you, we even see this in drug trials where there have been you know, medications that can help with the physical withdrawal thing of things, but they don't actually help with the psychological. Now, the psychological still has a dopamine component. It still has these chemical components, but because they're not you know, physically tangible, you know, saying, okay, if I, you know, if I smoke a cigarette, it's going to increase the dopamine in my brain. Um, but looking at, you know, looking at pictures of cigarettes still increases dopamine in the brain. And so wow. there's, there's a level of psychological dependence where people are still, you know, there's still, um, there's, there's a chemical aspect that's happening because our brain is all chemicals, you know? And so of course thinking is a, is a chemical <laughs> dependent, chemically dependent process. If you think of neurotransmitters, <laughs> that is the quote forever and ever for you. Uh, you should put that on as, a, I want to put that on a bumper sticker on a shirt. This all reminds me of something. And then the next thing I want to talk about is, is how this supplies the technology and then willpower and then your app and we'll, we'll get there and mindfulness. There's a, one of the studies that has always blown my mind and I, I tell it to people all the time, uh, a study into the placebo effect where they had people drink chocolate drinks, like protein shake type things. And they told them, they told some of the subjects that it had 200 calories and they told other subjects that it had like 500 calories and even though it always had 200 calories and they found like when they tested their blood that the people who were told that it had more calories produced more ghrelin, the chemical that makes you not as hungry. What blows my mind about that is the idea that I can tell you with words, with sounds barking out of my mouth, some information about this very abstract idea for most people, calories, and somehow that signal can worm its way through the neural network that's that is connected to my ears and go all the way down to affecting this hormone that's being pumped out of me that I don't even know exists that I didn't know how to name what the hell is happening with well, I that? think this this just shows our <laughs> I don't know where we started to separate these things the mind and body but you know, more and more, we're seeing that these really cannot be separated. And so, just like the learned behavior that we talked about earlier, where we can, if you don't tell people that socks, you know, the smell of socks is the smell of socks, it's different. They interpret it differently than if you say, "Yeah, those are stinky socks," because we've learned certain behaviors. And so, if we learn, oh, I'm going to eat a bunch of calories, you know, even hearing that, our brain can say, "Okay." Let's get into motion and deal with these calories uh, rather than just letting our body, you know, discover it, like how, you know, how calorie laden this is in itself. There's a thing I'm, that's, and I'm sure with mindfulness meditation, you have a lot of thoughts about that, but the, the, <laughs> but I was told something, it's just information. Like I don't have any, not like 
what drives me bonkers about that specific example, and there are other ones throughout the literature, is that it feels like a spell or an incantation. I spoke these words to you, and and then you, deep inside your body, something ha- changed at the chemical level. And it's not like you're an X-Man. You chose to make your body change. <laughs> at the, you, you didn't like go, and now I will produce this hormone. <sighs> like, you know, I don't even have, I don't have any knowledge of hormones or the chemical nature of them or how they bind and, and separate in right, the, right, the right. metabolic pathways. I don't know any of that. There's no way I could understand that. Right, but you can learn things. And so if you think, remember, we learn to anticipate behavior, right? And so remember, dopamine comes in and says, okay, and I'm going to anticipate a certain behavior. So for example, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I'm going to punch you in the stomach, you know, you might, in anticipation, without them punching you in the stomach, tighten your stomach muscles to prepare for an anticipatory response to that. Now, they're just telling you that they're going to punch you, right? In that sense, you've learned, oh, okay, tight my stomach muscles as a way to protect myself. And in the same way, how is the, you know, we do all these, you know, neurochemical things to tighten our stomach muscles. How is that different than this food experiment that you're talking about? I guess, I guess for me, it's because I, like, I can, I can look at my bicep and then flex it. And I know that there's, that's magical in and of itself because there, there is a bunch of things taking place, like you're saying, but I don't have, I didn't, I don't know, like, I don't believe that I can uh, alter my, uh, the chemicals that make me hungry or not. I feel like that's, uh, like the heart pump or pumping or, 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 or um, that's feel like that's my, my liver functioning or my pancreas. Like that's completely outside of the, the purview of my, of my prefrontal cortex. Right. But it feels like somehow, yeah, I can think my way to adjusting systems that feel completely outside of my control. That's what it feels like is, is being uncovered there. That's what makes it weird to me. Yeah, I can understand that. And this goes back to the will, potentially back to the willpower debate. Uh, this stuff is actually generally happening close to half a second before we've been conscious of it. So you might, if somebody says, I'm going to punch you, and you've already tightened your stomach muscles before you're consciously aware of it. And in the same, so it's like, you know, I, I understand what you're saying where, okay, I can visualize what would happen. And then I can ascribe um, some type of, um, you know, agency to that. <laughs> but in fact, our body is much faster than we are, which is good there it because is. we wouldn't survive otherwise. You that know, makes if, sense. If you stepped out into the street and, you know, this bus is bearing down on you and like, hmm, maybe I should get out of the way. Splat, you're dead, you know. Whereas you get out of the way and then you get... You, and then you get scared. And you're like, holy crap, I almost got hit by a bus. Okay. And then we ascribe agency there. Like, oh, I was afraid and I got out of the way. In reality, yeah, okay. if you slowed it down, you got out of the way and then you realized you were afraid. <laughs> I see. Okay. This is very William James. I get this. Okay. the I get that. The So the organism uh, of which my consciousness is an element uh, responds to the incoming information and then my consciousness on the back end goes, Hmm, let's take a, let's take a look at that. And, yeah. and, yeah. and part of that will be like these systems, like the left brain interpreter and all the, all these things that we have inside of us that will then create some narrative or some expl- expl- explanation or justification. And then, uh, but the subjective experience of it does not feel like it flows in that direction. The flow chart feels like it starts with agency and then goes to the next, the next, the next, the next, but that's not really what's going on. 
Right. So take the very beginning of our conversation was about disgust. We spit out poison before we're consciously aware of it. We don't have time to be consciously aware of it. Afterwards, we're like, oh, don't do that again. So we learn from it, but we don't sit there and go, hmm, oh, this is, this is arsenic. Hmm. I better spit that out. And now we return to our program. I'm David McRaney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and we're going to pick right back up where we left off with our conversation with Dr. Judd Brewer. So this feels like it segues into willpower because willpower feels like agency and the ultimate agency over the whole thing. Uh, You said earlier that willpower might not exist. Just go crazy with willpower. What are we talking about? Well, I've been trying to understand where the origins of this actually came from. And it's been traced back, you know, there are inscriptions on the Parthenon, apparently, and things like this about this rider and the horse, you know, the, the rider being the willpower trying to tame this wild horse of, of desire. Yet, when we look at it when, in modern day, when people have tried to do research on this, it's not that we don't have cognitive control. There's a huge field and, you know, many wonderful cognitive neuroscience experts out there that are studying cognitive neuroscience. But when they look at uh, cognitive control, they don't talk about it in terms of willpower. And in fact, this can be traced, one of the earliest ones that I know about, and I'm not the expert here, but one of the earliest that I know about is there was a guy, Edward Thorndike, who was actually one of the first people to describe animal behavior in terms of operant conditioning back in the late 1800s. He had a graduate student, uh, and it was apparently one of the first female uh, PhDs in the U.S. This was in the early 1900s, and she was actually, uh, if I understand correctly, of Japanese origin. Um, she went about just asking this question: Does you know, does willpower basically, you know, it stop or get depleted? And so she would do these math equations in her head for basically like 10 or 12 hours a day. And she just kept doing them and and would ask herself, can I do one more question? Can I do one more math equation? Can I do one more? And she could always do one more. Mm. Now there's, you know, boredom, um, (laughs) disgusted, like, you know, having to do yet another math equation. But when she, when she factored all of those out, you know, it's, it wasn't about, she, she just couldn't like, couldn't do it. You know, she, there was fatigue and things like that physical, but she could always do another math problem. And so there was one of the first examples that I know of to actually show that, you know, it, this, you know, we might, we might have certain motivational factors that we then rationalize and say, Oh, I was just ego depleted or whatever at the end of the day. But in reality, knows nobody's actually shown that we, that we don't have, you know, we don't have, or that we have this this capacity of willpower that can then be depleted. Now, cognitive control broadens into a, into a number of different things that affect it. It doesn't mean that we can't affect this process. And one of the biggest effectors there is reward value. If something's really rewarding, then we're going to do it again. So, for example, I've never had a patient come to me who's addicted to a substance and has said, you know, I really wanted a cigarette in the morning, but then at night I got tired and then that craving went away, <laughs> you know? Um, so, so if you look at reward value and something's really motivating, what they say is I tried to quit smoking and it got worse and worse and worse and worse throughout the day. And then the next day and, you know, and, and until I finally gave in, 
Well, where's the fatigue of, of that, which shows that, you know, there's a really strong, when something has a really strong reward value, then that's actually going to drive behavior. And it doesn't seem to be very limiting. And in fact, it can actually build on itself when we're really craving something. It's like, you know, we got to scratch that itch and that itch just get, it gets itchier and itchier until we actually scratch it. So that's where we said, okay, well, you know, if, if you look at the smoking rates, for example, one of the classically cited numbers for the likelihood that somebody's going to stay quit after they've quit, you know, like if you look a year later, it's about 5%. And if you look at the uh, treatment rates that we have for other drugs of abuse, alcohol, cocaine, whatever, you know, they're, they're not very good. They're not even at, you know, at 50% in terms of people being cured, so to speak, or having uh, persistent, you know, abstinence. So, and those are all based on willpower, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to just, you know, go cold turkey. So somebody, you know, I even learned this in medical school. If you want to, if you want to cut weight, uh, there's a simple mathematical equation. Make sure you have more calories out than calories in. That equation is accurate and true. But when you go into the clinic, <laughs> you say, okay, well, just make sure you eat salad instead of cake. Come back to me in a month. <laughs> this, you know, it doesn't work that way. So these, these ideas of rational behavior change are true ideas. But when you actually take it into actual behavior change, it doesn't work. So that's where we said, okay, you know, as a clinician, you know, I'm scratching my head as to, you know, how can I help my patients actually change their behaviors? You know, th this willpower-based stuff at best is giving us, you know, like 30%, 40% maybe. Can we actually tap into the process itself? So we started studying, you know, what is this process itself? And fortunately, there was a vast literature to draw upon in terms of uh, reward-based learning. So it's not like we had to come up with something new, but we could actually tap into it by looking at the structure itself. So reward-based learning is based on reward. It's not based on the behavior itself. If it were based on the behavior, we'd say, okay, stop smoking. <laughs> Great, you're done. Um, but that's not what drives behavior. It's the reward. So if we smoke to relieve that itch that says, hey, you need some dopamine right now, and we smoke, and it says, okay, thank you, we get back to baseline, and then that reinforces the process. Or we eat when we're bored and we feel, you know, we numb out, then, you know, that perpetuates the process. So it's actually the reward that drives behavior. So we went there, and we said, well, what can actually help people really get accurate and updated information in their brain? And that's where mindfulness training comes in, which is basically helping people pay attention to what's actually happening and what the actual result of their behavior is. So for example, had people in our, we had a smoking a study on smoking cessation, had people, we, we used, um, we did this in person, we even used an app-based mindfulness training called uh, Craving to Quit, where we basically train people to pay attention as they smoke. <laughs> and when they, when they actually pay attention when they smoke, how many of them are like, wow, that cigarette tasted so good, I want another one. <laughs> You know, I had a guy say, man, I can't, you know, he'd been smoking like 40 years. So he'd reinforced this like close to 300,000 times, literally. Um, and he's like, wow, I never realized how crappy these tasted. 
how did I not notice that before? And what he did right in that moment was give his brain, and there's a part of the brain called the orbitofrontal cortex that's, that determines and stores reward value. He gave his brain accurate and updated information. He went from habit, not paying attention, to just simply paying attention. And in that moment, his brain said, wait a minute, this isn't that rewarding. I'm not that into this anymore. And it became disenchanted. And that starts the process of people quitting. We've even mapped this into the brain uh, where you know this default mode network that I mentioned earlier, um, that gets activated when people are craving. It gets deactivated with meditation and mindfulness training. We found that we could use this, uh, this craving to quit app, target this brain region and have it predict um, you know, reduction in cigarette smoking. So we could even link the theory to the brain mechanisms to the behavior. We even went on to uh, show this with eating behavior because, you know, smoking seems a little more straightforward. It's tough to, to quit, but it's, you know, we could, we could understand that mechanism. We said, cause, you know, you, you have to eat to survive. You don't have to smoke to survive. So we had people use an app-based mindfulness training to pay attention as they were eating. The program was called Eat Right Now. And we basically helped them map out the process, see what habits they were getting in around eating, help them really pay attention to what that result was. So when they overate or when they ate junk food, what did they actually get from it? And people started to see, oh, you know, this isn't actually that great, which then helps them become disenchanted. We got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating because people were actually tapping into this very, very basic mechanism. We even did this with anxiety. So we created an app called Unwinding Anxiety, and we went to one of the most challenging populations that we could think of, which is physicians. <laughs> hmm. Physicians are tough to work with, and I can say that being part of that crowd. I, you know, we learned in medical school that you know, we can't show weakness. We have to armor up. You know, we have to be the martyrs and all this stuff. So now there's an epidemic of physician burnout. Great. <laughs> you know, we're doing a great job uh, in this country. So what we did was we gave them this unwinding anxiety app. And three months later, we had a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety symptoms. And on top of this, we saw significant reductions in certain aspects of burnout, like um, when people were becoming depersonalized or, um, or more callous toward others. That actually started to dissolve because those two are highly correlated, anxiety and callousness. So we could, we we're seeing this on a mechanistic level in three different types of behaviors, suggesting that overall we've got a, you know, the mindfulness mechanistically taps into the same reward-based learning process that's you know getting us into trouble in the first place and the simple thing that it's doing is helping our brains get this updated information because our brains are always looking for something better so not only do they see how unrewarding these old behaviors are but they actually see that it's pretty rewarding to be in the present moment right now you know it feels better to be present <laughs> than to be, you know, constantly scrolling on Instagram looking for something exciting to look at or scrolling on our, you know, on Amazon looking for something to want. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's crazy. So these technological loops we get in, I mean, there, there's got to be, there's so many different things that there could be pinging. You were talking about this social status and social currency. Obviously, that's something. And then there's just like foraging behavior or looking for the little red dots and whatever it is that, it, that was being satisfied. Similarly with food and cigarettes, like you go to smoke a cigarette, you're not, you're just like 
give cigarette, feel good, yay, or you know, eat uh, drive through, I'm happy, yay. There's not a there's not a lot of uh, you know uh, introspection taking place there. Uh, though I do think that you do get exhausted if you get on Netflix and you browse looking for what to watch for an hour, and then you realize, well, now I have to go to bed. I guess I guess I watched the Netflix menu tonight. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you're like, what just happened to me? Like, why did it, I couldn't? And but it's the same thing you're doing on Instagram and Twitter and everything else. Like, you're, it's just this continuous, um, almost getting to the thing thing where you're. It's it's this weird foraging bizarreness that's not getting you anywhere, and it's and it's purely mindless. And I can almost feel like there's a there is some sort of anxiety reduction in not having to experience yourself for a little while and just browsing endlessly, but it gets nowhere. And so it's, it's odd. It's great that you've used that you're taking technology of the app to break this. I want to ask one question before we get into that and then we'll head out and everything. But the, what is your definition of mindfulness? What is that? Yeah, there are a bunch of different mindfulness definitions. And so one working definition that, that I find useful is bringing awareness to the experience with an attitude of curiosity. So we notice the push and pull of, you know, I want more of this, I want less of this. And we're simply being aware of our thoughts, we're being aware of our emotions, we're being aware of our body sensations in a way that's not assuming anything, it's not making any judgments, it's just simply being curious, like, oh, what? Oh, here's a thought, oh, here's this emotion, oh, here's this body sensation. We're not getting sucked in. When we were talking earlier about the, there is this whole organism of which consciousness is an element and, but we often feel like consciousness is the pilot or it is the whole thing. The whole thing is consciousness. The default, I know just what little I do know about all that stuff. And, and obviously you're the supreme expert on this, but the, the default, I know in, in meditation in psychedelics, a lot of what goes on there is turning the volume down on the default mode network, which seems to somehow turn the volume down on feeling this not not this agency being the whole thing like this this curiosity and that you're talking about and noticing in a way it seems like the self or consciousness or, or the avatar or the agency whatever we want to call it is going to the sidelines and then observing the organism itself like it's the it's like the captain going up on deck and having a coffee and just kind of looking at the ship and the waves and everything is that sort of a good way to look at it yeah i think so and i think we could zoom in on a particular aspect because there are thousand year old debates around consciousness and this and that that we don't need to get into today if you zoom in on the aspect of what drives behavior is that closed down contracted itchy restless quality that says do something and that closed down quality of experience actually may be a marker that says, okay, I am, right, from an experiential standpoint. So if we're anxious, there's this feeling of anxiety that says, okay, this is me. And then outside of that feeling is the rest of the world. So it gives us a demarcation between us and you know, the rest of the world. In contrast, when we get curious and when we're truly curious and we're really open to experience, that feeling flips from closed to, to more of an open, expansive quality of awareness. You can think of awe or flow. You know, Csikszentmihalyi, this guy, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi was a psychologist who described this concept of flow as selfless, as effortless, you know, and, and actually pretty pleasurable. We found when using neuroimaging studies that when people are actually getting into flow, 
their posterior cingulate, part of one of the main hubs of this default mode network, moves from activated to deactivated. So it quiets down. And so that may be a marker. And again, it's much more complicated than single brain regions. But when we used real-time neural feedback in the scanner, we could only look at one brain region at a time. It may be a marker of this, you know, getting caught up in experience, whether it's getting caught up in a craving or caught up in anxiety or whatever. And then that marker, you know, that brain region quiets down as we let go and we move into a more, like you're describing the, the captain or ship getting up on the deck, as we just move into an open awareness of what's actually happening and are, and are part of the process as compared to thinking that we are doing the process. Yeah, so you're going from I am anxious to the organism is anxious and I am no, and I am noticing that. Is that sort of a good construction? Yeah, and I'll give a concrete example. We've had people in our Unwinding Anxiety program report, you know, being able to write out full-blown panic attacks. And, you know, when they noticed the feeling of panic or anxiety, they could flip it from, and not, not in some cognitive thinking way, but simply develop the habit of becoming more curious about those sensations rather than feeling like, oh, I am curious. And that curiosity, because it feels better, becomes more positively reinforced than the unpleasant feeling of anxiety itself. So this person was able to hack into her brain, literally, to have um, anxiety be replaced by curiosity as she opened to noticing, oh, these are physical sensations, they come and go. I'm going to ask one more tangential question. I promise we'll get back to what we were talking about and, get, and, get, and, and you can go do your actual work. We had some scientists on the show a while back, and I've this is something that I've became fixated on for years, uh, Kaplan, Gimbel, and uh, Harris. And they put people in an fMRI, and they challenged they, – they, they showed them arguments that would either challenge their beliefs or their attitudes on neutral topics or on politically charged topics like climate change and gun control. And they found their default mode network came online. It was very uh, – that's where the blood flow went. Mm -hmm. And and they felt very threatened and, as it was described to me, as if they were being attacked by a bear. And that led to me thinking, oh, boy, it's more about the self than I thought it was. And then that led to the idea of self and group self and what's being threatened and everything. I'm mentioning it now because I've noticed that it just as a cultural shift, a lot of people's identities and group identities have moved on to not just being, let's say, Episcopalian or something, but vegan or Democrat, liberal. I'm a gamer or something like that. So it's not just what you're eater into, but that now has become who you are. But I've also noticed, uh, when I, especially when I've done psychedelics in the past or people that have, are doing psychedelic research or you get on forums where people talk about that or you get into meditation, one of the outputs of those two things which seems to me are things that affect the default mode network is that people no longer feel so compelled by identity and they start to look at those things and think, Oh, that's all bullshit. We are, we're all one or in our, and these identities are like barnacles or something. The, so I guess what I'm the down, what I'm trying to say is I've, if, is this a reasonable <laughs> way to look at it? The idea that, these medit both meditation and or other m avenues toward turning the volume down on these things that you were talking about, like the posterior cingulate cortex, by whatever you want to call this depersonalization or shifting the perspective from 
I'm a, I am to, I am part of seems is that what's happening whenever people have that experience that they, they, they're so common to these two, I don't know what you would call them pathways yeah. uh, of your, where you, you go, Oh wait, like I can't believe I cared about that so much. That seems to be something that happens on a big grand scale. And then, then the second thing you think is if I don't have to care about that, then that means I am not separate from, and then you look around and see all the people you know and go, everyone. Is that something? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll say yes and yes. And two, two things I want to highlight there. One is that, you know, why would any type of in-group type thing um, be different? Whether it's, you know, I am vegan, I am a gamer, I am this, I am that. It's the same process where it, it gets rewarded where, you know, it, it feels good to be part of that group, you know, oh, yeah, and we can all wear the same hats, or we can all, you know, go online and, and shoot each other, or whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever's happening. Like George Carlin said, always be careful when they start wearing hats. That's the <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first piece. The second is, actually, there are three pieces here. The second is that the psychedelic research has been shown to deactivate the same default mode network as uh, our meditation studies. Uh, so there's a very, very nice overlap with that, and people describe similar things. I think of the psychedelics as like throwing a hand grenade in your brain and really blowing up the, you know, the, the sense of self, uh, whereas meditation is more of a, a tapping into it without the, without the chemicals. But the third piece is, as you talk about where we realize, you know, oh, why did I do this? It, our brain is always looking for that BBO. It's always looking for that bigger, better offer. If we don't give it a bigger, better offer, it's going to go back to what it knows. And, you know, I love this saying that's attributed to, to Einstein, which is, you know, basically you can't solve a problem with the same consciousness that created it. And so we can't just think our way out of, you know, being of separation, of, of attacking other groups or whatever. It just, you know, it, that's the best reward that we've got. That's the excitement of power or the, you know, excitement of in-group or feeling of belonging or whatever. But when we realize there's actually a, a bigger, better offer of a feeling, you know, because it's painful to be attacked by other group. It's painful to have to protect yourself. All of this stuff takes a lot of energy and it just doesn't feel that great when compared to something better. And so when somebody, you know, takes psychedelics or they meditate or they just have this glimpse of, oh, wait a minute, you're human, I'm human, and we have that connection, you know, it could even just be in a great conversation that we had with somebody that we thought mm. was really different than we were, you know, and we break down those boundaries and we're like, oh, wow, that was awesome. Let's do that again. It feels much better than going on Twitter or Tinder or whatever, because we're actually connecting and that connection feels opening as compared to the closed down quality that, you know, that dopamine drive that says I have to protect myself. And so we're getting that bigger, better offer, which then, you know, for some people, it's hard for them to go back and, and, and you know, and they say, how did I ever think it was, it felt good to, uh, you know, to rail on other groups or to, you know, even to the point where some are violent, you know, to say, ah, you you know, they're like, wow, that's so painful for me. It's painful for others. When they see the connected quality of experience that just feels better, it's a no-brainer. Let me ask, first of all, that was insanely awesome, and I'm just, just taking notes as you spoke uh, because I love all of that. Uh, and that's something I thought about a, quite a bit and had this notion 
as I've been bouncing over through the literature and interviewing so many different people, I'm like, ah, oh, it's just the default mode network, y'all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and why do we so protect our concept of self, this avatar thing? I mean, you you are an experienced meditator, so you, and I'm sure you are very aware of all the different ways of looking at it. And I understand from the Dan Cahan's work and others the idea that we no, we're, we are group identity is important for all sorts of reasons. But just identity in and of itself, this this idea, this protagonist I have created, why do we so protect that from when we feel it is threatened in some way? Is it just are we just protecting our reputation as we understand it, or so that you know are we protecting the, our perception of ourselves? as a good person for our peers, or is it more than that? Yeah, we might not even know what it is consciously that we're protecting, but we're protecting something. And that something got set up, and it could have been multiple hits, so to speak, where it might be, you know, we get a, a dopamine hit when we got a bunch of likes on an Instagram or Twitter, you know, feed, you know, a post that we just made. And so we think, oh, uh, people like what I have to say. And so we start, you know, literally that gets, that gets reinforced. And then it might be somebody says, Oh, you're good at, I don't know, playing tennis. I'm just making stuff up. And so then that becomes part of this, uh, this composite of this self that we start defending same process. It just gets applied to something else. And so you can see how this can happen all through our, you know, a lot of it starting in childhood and this and that, where we start to develop quote unquote, a sense of self, literally around the behaviors that were reinforced, which could have been, you know, our parents saying, you know, good job. Mm-hmm. I see. And so it's more, it's, that's like, it's almost like a, identity can be like a category error where like that old metaphor of you take somebody to tour the college campus and you show them the buildings and you show them the cafeteria. And then, they, then finally they're like, yeah, but where's the college? Where's the university at? Yeah. Like I just showed you. And identity is similar in that identity is a lot of different things and it's not, one like orb that's glowing and floating in the center of your pineal gland or something. It's a, it's a lot of different processes and ideas and memories that we have uh, associate with very positive things that we need to be positive. We need to have a positive reputation amongst our peers. We need to have effectance. We need all these things. These are the things that are all good for the um, survival for survival. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we solved that. That was 2,000 years taken care of right there. Um, my last question then is just, okay, just tell me about this app you created, how it relates to your research, how it works, and how people can get it. Well, there, there are three apps, uh, one for eating called Eat Right Now, one for smoking called Craving to Quit, and one for anxiety called Unwinding Anxiety. And they all share a basic framework. So you take you know, what ails you. Um, <laughs> hopefully, we'll have more in the future. But those are our first three uh, so if somebody's struggling with eating too much or uh, stress eating or whatever, they would download our Eat Right Now app, and uh, they basically it walks you systematically through a, a training. Uh, there are usually around 30 core modules that are about 10 minutes a day, and the important piece is that people really learn how their minds work first, and then learn how to work with their mind. Whether mm. you know, and so. You know, with eating or anxiety, they would use the unwinding anxiety program, same premise. So there are core modules, and then there are theme weeks that build on the core premises. Uh, there's an online community that people can join. Um, I moderate that community so they can 
uh, ask questions. They can keep a journal. We even have a live weekly group that they can join, you know, via Zoom. So, uh, you know, supports. But the the basic process is learn how your mind works. Here's some tools that you can use throughout the day. You don't have to do anything extra besides that ten minutes, because we're being very pragmatic here. And then um, from there, they learn how it works and how they can tap into the same processes that set up these habits to unwind them. And you can find all of this on my website, uh, drjud.com, drjud.com. But the app is is to quit for smoking, for eating, it's eat right now. And for anxiety, it's unwinding anxiety. And people can find all of those uh, links to all of those on my website, drjud.com. That is awesome, and uh, and your your book is uh, the Craving Mind, and uh, don't worry, I'll put uh, all that in there because we sort of talked about all of existence. <laughs> I know it was really fun. <laughs> My existential dread has dropped quite significantly during this conversation, <laughs> so that's good. So, so I, I thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for reaching out. This has been wonderful. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And for links to everything that we talked about in this episode, go to youarenotsosmart.com. You'll find show notes. You'll find transcripts. You'll find other episodes, the back catalog. You'll find all sorts of great things there. And you can go to Dr. Judd's website at drjud.com. Very easy. Find all of his apps, find more information about what he does, watch his TED Talks, and so on. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. The music you're hearing right now, that is Banjo Apocalypse. You can find us on social media at NotSmartBlog. On Twitter, I am at David McRaney, Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And you can also find us on Patreon, where you can pitch in and help the show grow and be better and do its thing. Patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free, but at higher amounts you can get t-shirts, signed books, posters, and all sorts of cool stuff. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.